This illustration may be a bit extreme, I hope, but I hope it also serves its rhetorical purpose. So here you are in a courtroom and you're being charged for teaching or practicing biblical Christianity. And the jury enters. They're all drag queens. And the prosecuting attorney is an activist lesbian graduated from Stanford Law School. She has an amicus brief from a female pastor with an MDiv from Yale and a D-Min from Harvard. The judge enters, bearded Taliban imam. A bit fantastical, isn't it? Perhaps. But perhaps it has served a rhetorical purpose. And that is, in the courts of men, Christians are liable to be misjudged. Our central text this evening is from the book of Romans. I invite you to turn there to Romans chapter 8. And direct your attention to the words of the apostle in verse 33 to the beginning of verse 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Consider with me this evening, first of all, the Christian in the courts of men. Now, as Christians, we are taught to honor God-constituted authority. We learn in Romans 13, 1 and following that we are to do good and expect that God-constituted government authority will judge us accordingly. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 and verse 17 that, that we are to honor the king. We are to pray for our leaders in 1 Timothy 2, 2. Indeed, Christians ought to be model citizens while we are here in this Babylon state. If we break the law, we will receive due punishment. If we are given a ticket for speeding, we'll show up at court and we'll pay our ticket. Paul said to Festus, if I'm a wrongdoer, if I've committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die in Acts 25, 11. But as I say in our illustration and what's before us this evening is being judged for teaching or practicing biblical Christianity, being judged for our Christian faith and discipleship, our Christian churchmanship, being judged for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of Christ. Now, it ought not to surprise us that the Bible instructs us about these things. After all, the entire second half of the book of Acts are, are, are depictions of court scenes. The epistles, by and large, were written from prison cells. The apostles were all executed 
except for John, who was exiled at a very old age. All of the primary leaders of our religion were condemned in the courts of men. And we practice a religion that serves a crucified Lord. One who was condemned in religious courts and in royal courts and in civil courts. So if or when we are accused in human courts for practicing or teaching biblical religion, we have a wonderful promise given to us in the prophet Isaiah. And if you turn to Isaiah 54, this is a text that I hope will be an encouragement to you. In Isaiah 54 and verse 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication, their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. In other words, I'll overturn the condemning verdict of every lesser court because you cannot be condemned in the courtroom of God. You can be condemned in every courtroom other than that. But as a Christian in Christ, my dear friends, we cannot be condemned in the courtroom of God. God justifies us. Who can condemn us? Jesus told his disciples of impending persecution and warned them of the inevitable legalities that will be involved with that. Satan, we're told in Revelation 12, the accuser of the brethren who accuses the brethren before God day and night has been cast out of the courtroom of heaven. And he's been cast to the earth. But he, as a prosecuting attorney, as an accuser of the brethren, he still does his lawyering. And he does his lawyering in any court that he can get a hearing in. And he does his best to bring accusation against God's people. Again, the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 10, reading at verse 16. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men. For they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his children, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, 
You will not finish going through all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the, for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Verse 17 makes mention of the fact that they will hand you over to the courts, religious courts, civil courts. It's very intriguing when you study scripture's testimony to the persecution of the church, church history, this whole matter of persecution, and you see the hand of the evil one in it. The evil one always persecutes the church legally. He always persecutes the church legally. He gets into the courts of men and he manipulates and contrives and adjusts laws so that there are judgments against God's people. But our, our heritage is the vindication of God. And there is no accusation formed against us that ultimately triumphs in the courtroom that really matters. And that's the courtroom of God. Now we've come to a time in our society when biblical Christianity is being condemned in numerous courts. The courts of popular opinion, the courts of the media, the courts of the education and school rooms, family courtrooms, sitting in dining rooms and kitchens. A Christian can find himself or herself suddenly confronted with accusation, having to make a defense of the hope that is within us. Civil courts, laws that are coming to press upon us as increasingly our convictions relative to the God who has created us, male and female, is running contrary to the laws that are being established in our day. And even such perverse laws are being embraced by many so-called Christian churches. There is every reason to expect that this opposition against biblical truth and biblical religion is going to increase. When you look at those who are presently in the university systems of our nation and in Europe and elsewhere, and you realize that these are the ones who are going to put their hands on the wheels of social and civil authority in another decade or so. <laughs> and how old are you going to be in another decade or so? And we need to be honest and understand the circumstances in which we live as we consider these matters of the evil one and judicial perversions and how it is that the accuser of the brethren, although defeated in the courtroom of God, is now doing everything he possibly can to gain leverage against the testimony of Christ in the courtrooms of men. We need to acquire the mindset of the Apostle Paul when he speaks in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined, that is investigated, interrogated, to find evidence to convict me of a crime by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. And of course, at that point, Paul is entrusting himself to the 
to the decision, to the judgment that is made in his behalf in the courtroom of God because he stands justified in God's court, even as we just sang Jesus' blood and righteousness. He is our righteousness. He is our vindication. That brings me secondly to consider then the Christian in the court of God. The Christian in the court of God. And here again, we turn back to Romans chapter 8. Why is it that Jesus encourages his disciples in the face of inevitable persecution, prosecution, and court scenes that fill the second half, particularly the book of Acts? Why is he encouraging us? Look, you'll be misjudged by men. There will be entire legal systems that will be constructed that will not be favorable to you. Why does he fortify us to have a courageous, hopeful conviction of faith? Well, the Apostle Paul steps forward in Romans 8. And he acts now as a defending attorney. Because here we stand in a courtroom, the courtroom of God. And Paul presents questions for any accuser. In verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he also not with him? How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? You see what Paul is doing. He's, he is standing in our behalf, as it were, in the courtroom of God and saying, all right, who is going to make a case that's going to overrule the determination of the judge of heaven and earth? Who is going to bring a charge against? It's a legal term of argument. Paul is saying, I'm willing to take on any opponent who's going to come into this courtroom and challenge the impeccable righteousness of Jesus Christ as being somehow insufficient for the justification of all who trust in him. Who's going to come in and find some imperfection in Jesus' righteousness? Who's going to point to something in his life that was sinful, that somehow disqualifies him from being the sacrificial lamb that pays the penalty for our sin and the victory of his resurrection, now being exalted to the throne of God where he is seated as our Melchizedek and king who intercedes for us. Who's going to come into the court and point at Jesus and say, you're not adequate for this? Who's going to bring condemnation against us? When we have such a mediator, when we have such righteousness, who is going to find us guilty when we have been justified in the courtroom of God? Who is the one who condemns? There is nothing that will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. You see, the separation is the judgment of death. It is the, the tearing apart of what God is united. And we are livingly united with Jesus Christ. We are livingly united to him whose love is omnipotent and sovereign and stronger than any created force, than any humanly constructed authority, than any courtroom, than any experience 
than anyone, anywhere, at any time. This is a victory in the courtroom of God that stands supreme now and forever. The Christian in the courtroom of God cannot be condemned because it is God who justifies. And the opposite of justification is condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. The beginning of this chapter, in chapter 8, verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because of our union with Jesus Christ, because of his love for us. And what is his love for us? What is Jesus' love? We get, we get confused on this. We, we get mushy and foggy, some sort of big cosmic kiss or something. It, no, what is this love? Well, it's in verse 34. Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from his love. That's his love. His love is his sinless life lived for us. His love is his sacrificial death for us. His love is his resurrection for us, his ascension for us, his enthronement for us, his interceding for us, his coming again for us, his uniting to us, in, us to himself in glorified bodies and bringing us into the glorified state of his Sabbath rest in a new heaven and a new earth. That's love. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Don't let the world take the word love and redefine it. And don't come to Christ and say, well, if you love me, and then set out your agenda. Because he's already told you how he loves you. He's lived a life you could never live in sinless perfection. He's died the death that you deserve to die in eternal damnation. And he has risen for you that you might have a life that you otherwise could never attain to, resurrection life, glorified life, eternal life, the life of the age to come. That's love. That's the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. You are a Christian in the courtroom of God. But particularly, thirdly, let me draw your attention to this matter that Paul mentions in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? So we consider the chosen Christian in Christ cannot be condemned in the court of God. The chosen Christian. Why is Paul emphasizing our election in verse 33? In, 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 in grammar, this is called a synecdoche. Okay. The, you take a part of something and you use the part to represent the entirety of the thing. Right? So you some come to someone and you say, hey, how do you like my wheels? Well, it, you, you're talking about the entire car, not, you know, not just the wheels, right? That's a synecdoche. The White House said, well, that's that's the representative part of the entire presidential administration. Man shall not live by bread alone. It's a, a synecdoche. All right? it's, a, it's a translation of a Greek word that the root of it, dekomai, is to receive or to accept. 
ek, out of, and soon together. So you take, you receive something out of all of what's together. In other words, something taken from the entire thing, representing the entire thing. So what entire thing does elect represent? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? The things that were just referenced here in verse 29 and verse 30. Predestination and foreknowledge. All of these saving blessings and more that aren't even mentioned here, the blessings of the gift of faith and repentance, the blessings of our adoption, the blessings of our sanctification. So what is God's elect? It's a Christian. It's, it's a representative of, of a Christian who has been chosen. And the choice of God supersedes all the other descriptions or, de or, or decisions made or assessments made by other people against the Christian. Look at, at Psalm 65. In Psalm 65, we see this matter of being chosen and brought into the very presence of God. In Psalm 65 and verse 4, how blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Here is a people chosen to have access, to be given audience, to be given privileged status in the very temple of God, to dwell where? In your courts, to dwell in the presence of God being accepted because they have been chosen. But these who are been, have been chosen are also described earlier here in verse 3. They're the ones who acknowledge the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Iniquities prevail against me. But as for our transgression, you forgive them. How do you hear one of God's elect talking? He's not bragging about his election. He is marveling at the mercy of God. My iniquities prevailed against me, but you have forgiven me of my sin. I can come into the courtroom of God, accepted, forgiven, justified. And that's all due to the, the grace of the God who chooses us in Christ Jesus. So although God's elect are not condemned in God's court, Jesus tells us that because we have been chosen by him, we will be condemned in men's courts. Again, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, looking at chapter 15, and dropping in at verse 16 of John chapter 15, the words of Christ in the upper room discourse. Jesus tells us that his choosing of us is one of the distincting, distinctive reasons why we will be condemned in men's courts. 
John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus says, I've chosen you. I've blessed you. I've saved you. I'm saving you. I will save you. You stand in the courtroom of God now, justified. There's no one who can bring a condemnation against you because you are united to the perfection of Jesus Christ himself. And there's none who can find fault in Christ. And his righteousness is imputed to you. The love that the Father has for his Son embraces you. This is a sovereign love. This is an electing love. This is a saving love. This is a life-giving love. This is an omnipotent love. And no one, nothing, no experience, no situation, no human construct of force of what any kind of any kind can pry you out of the hand of your shepherd and out of the hand of your father. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which in is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Jesus describes his chosen in this context in verse 16. As the elect, you are going to bear fruit of this life that has been given to you because you're living an eternally significant life. In verse 17, you will be part of a community of prayer and of love in verse 16. In a world of filled of hatred in verse 18, you have been chosen to be a peculiar people Marked by love, by this all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love one for another. Therefore, expect that you'll be treated the same way the world has treated Christ. Because you are joined to him and you are following him. And Jesus is speaking just hours away from going into the courtrooms of the Sanhedrin and of Pilate, and of Herod, and of Pilate, and of the mob screaming for him to be crucified. He's just hours away from his cross, and just a few more hours from his resurrection, and a few more weeks to his ascension and his exaltation to the throne of God. And we're following him. And we're following him. And he now is our righteousness in the courtroom of God. So we come to the supper this evening. We come to this bread and to this cup. And what is it that these elements represent? 
Why is it that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed? We know that in the courtroom of God, he is bearing our sins in his body. He is dying for us, his people. But on the plane of human perception, he's on that cross because he's been judged to be a criminal. He's been judged to be an insurrectionist. So what's the whole assumption here? What's the assumption? The context by which the Lord's Supper has its significance. Humanly speaking, the context is the world hates Jesus. And the world condemns Jesus. And we now participate with Jesus, standing with him against the condemning courtrooms of men. In what courtroom is Jesus now? Well, he's in God's courtroom. And how has Jesus been judged? Well, he's been vindicated. He's been exonerated. His sinless life has been validated. He's risen. His sacrificial death has been accepted because he stands as our substitutionary Passover lamb. He is our Melchizedek and high priest and king. He represents us, for we are united to him. And he has given to us his spirit and his life and his word and his people and his ordinances. And he is saying to us in all of these things, my dear brothers and sisters, I love you. And there is nothing that's going to take you out of the embrace of my love. And that's what we're called to experience here tonight. To experience our salvation. To rehearse gospel realities. The realities that are every bit as real and vital to our lives as the basic rudiments of chewing and drinking of tasting and swallowing, feeding, nourishing, faith, hope, love in the living Jesus Christ, the one in whom we are righteous. God has justified us in Christ Jesus. Who is the one who can condemn us? This world is increasingly marshalling arguments and authorities, powers and principalities, dominions, all manner of opposition that Paul goes on to list in Romans 8 that are being formed against the Christian that would threaten us from experiencing the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we must be faithful and let no one rob us of our joy. Let no one rob us of our delight in Christ, a delight that is living and so foundational to our identity. It's like eating and drinking. It's like breathing. 
It's living. We're in God's courtroom in Christ, clothed with his righteousness, forgiven. We have already passed out of death into life. The apostles' questions are thrilling because he asked these questions and there's no one that answers them. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Crickets. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Nobody steps forward. Nobody can. Because nobody can build a case against us. Because God has justified us in Christ Jesus. And as we eat and drink of this supper, we rehearse the realities of our salvation. We experience the joy of our salvation. We live as a saved people united to Jesus Christ. So what shall we say to these things? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation. I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Amen.